You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to a new episode of the Rua Space Podcast with Phil and Aaron. And we're so glad to have you here with us today. We are starting our Advent series today. We are in Advent. And each week, what we want to do for you uh, during the Advent season is to kind of paint a picture of what life was like for people when Jesus was born. So we all know the story of many of us know the story of Jesus's birth and we know a lot of the basics right he he was born uh, there was a census he was born in a manger because there was no room because everyone was traveling and we're comfortable with those but we were wondering what would happen if we explored a little different and we got just even a broader picture of what was going on for your normal Jewish person at the time when Jesus was born and we're looking into kind of the traditional Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love during our Lectio Divina discussions. So we're still kind of doing that traditional look at Advent. So if you're wanting kind of that aspect, we encourage you to go to the Lectio Divina. But for these, we kind of wanted, again, just to paint a picture of what was the world Jesus came into. Because again, during Advent, we're anticipating this coming, right? But now as Christians, like 2,000 years later, we're looking toward his coming again. And so right. we want to kind of look at the time period and then see what conclusions we can draw for our own lives today as we anticipate the coming, just like people 2,000 years ago did. Exactly. So I wanted to start us out by looking into what was going on, because I have taken some basic Bible history in college, but that was really it. And I'm wondering, when you look at what was happening, why there would be a census that causes everybody to have to relocate and go somewhere else? Like, what was going on when Jesus was coming into the world? Because it seems a bit chaotic. <laughs> There's a lot of things going on. Um, and let me just start by saying, whenever you look at something that happened 2,000 years ago, there is no absolute definitive statement on most things. I mean, there is, right. but there's a sense in which there's people in all kinds of different camps who say, well, when you look at this historian or you look at that historian and they disagree and which one, you know, so with everything we're saying, you know, we do our best to get a picture of what was going on, but you know, there's few things that are absolutely 100%. We just try to get sort of as close as we can, right? Yes. Um, and so I think your question was about the census. And so yeah. I think what we have going on is, you know, at the time, and this really leads into the need for a savior in this time, because the people had been sort of controlled by outside governments really for hundreds of years. So when we're looking at the land of Israel, right, because we tend to look back and we think Jesus, Jewish, Israel, boom. Was there an Israel at this time? Yeah, I mean, As the, we the, know the land it. of Israel, the land of Palestine, yeah, it, it was, but it was But they under, weren't self-governing, right? Right, so they were under Roman occupation. Okay. And so the birth of Jesus, which actually is kind of interesting because we know from the Gospels that King Herod tries to kill Jesus after he was born. And so when it comes to kind of figuring out a date, we can date Jesus' birth and the events that are going on based on King Herod. So the census must have taken place near... The beginning of Jesus' life, obviously, and the end of Herod's life. 
Now, what's fascinating is Herod died in 4 BCE, which means that... That doesn't line up. <laughs> right. So it's kind of funny that we like to think of the year Jesus di- uh, was born as zero, but historically that's extremely improbable because he was probably born in like 5 or 6 or 4, somewhere in that actual time range. Oh, so by the time okay. we get to zero, Jesus is like in kindergarten. He's right? like a preschooler yeah, by the time he's exactly. zero. Okay, good. But anyway, the idea is the Roman Empire had this notion that... That they could conquer the world and by conquering it militarily, economically, religiously, you know, they could bring peace to the world. Okay. And so the idea was we take over the world, everybody becomes Roman. And yay, because everyone's Roman, there's peace, right? And now they let people kind of do their thing locally, right? Like the Jewish people were afforded the special opportunity to continue to worship their own God. However, they're still under Roman rule. And so the Romans wanted taxes. They wanted to know how many people were in their areas. And so I think a census was related to that in the sense of understanding sort of what was happening. So it's almost like Rome was, they had taken over this land And they're trying to get some documentation on who is there, how many people are there, where can they find these people when they want money or want something. Is that is that a good way to understand it? Exactly. I mean, that's Luke chapter two. It says in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so. Oh, so it wasn't just Israel. This was all of Rome was getting a census taken. Exactly. Oh, I always just pictured it being. Israel. I guess that's my own misreading of scripture there. (laughs) Now, to sort of get the sense, because I think that the, the emotion, the sense that the people had would have been very similar to the sense we have today in terms of anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So Rome was just the most recent occupying force, right? Because there had been Babylon and some others before Exactly. And Jewish people had varying levels of animosity toward Rome, right? And we'll talk about some of the religious groups in in one of the next couple weeks, probably. But for example, the Sadducees were like, well, let's work with the Romans, right? And different Pharisees had different levels of working with or against. And there were some people called zealots who were fully against it, right? So people had different levels. But I think under the surface everyone would have wanted to be free. And this goes all the way back actually to the year 586. So the Babylonian empire came in and this is in the Old Testament, right? So all the way back to these prophets like Isaiah, Mm. Jeremiah, they're talking about the exile, right? The Babylonians came in, wiped them out, destroyed the temple and sent them into exile. And they were in exile for a number of decades until Cyrus, the king of Persia came into power sort of overtook the Babylonians, allowed the Israelites to return to their land. Now we have all this time of being under Persian rule. Now, thankfully, the Persians were like a little hands-offish. They let Israel rebuild the temple, all that. But there was still a sense in which the people weren't back to just God being their king. So they're under the Persian rule all the way until, you know, 333 when Alexander the Great, who was Greek, came in and conquered the land followed by the Ptolemies of Egypt, followed by the Seleucids, followed by the Romans. Now, in between these times, sometimes the Jews would like take back their land just to be taken over again. Okay. But overall, it was just one outside occupying force after another. Wow. I guess I always, I mean, I knew they had periods of occupancy, but it never really occurred to me that they were, they were more likely occupied than not really in their history then. Exactly. So the people are wanting 
a savior. They're wanting a Messiah to reform this promise to Abraham that you would be a nation who would be a blessing to the world. Right. And it's the, hard to be a nation when you keep being overtaken by other nations. Exactly. So they're waiting for Jesus to come. And they're used to the type of world where who is the nation that rules? The nation who comes in with the strongest military, right? The mm. nation with the most power. So people probably expected Jesus to be that kind of leader, to raise up an army of people and kick out the Romans. So when he comes, he comes in a very different way than the people wanted or expected. Right. So Jesus comes and rather than kicking them out with his military, dies on the cross and says, peace doesn't come through victory by taking everyone over. He flips it on its head and says, victory comes through peace, through self-sacrificial love, that he defeated the Romans, not by kicking them out, but by like subverting their own game. Right? Right. Right. Okay. So, Which is in a different kind of freedom. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so going back to Rome's occupancy here. So do we have a record of like how long Rome had been occupying Israel before there was the census? So they came in around 63. So the census being probably in this year, four, five, six-ish time. Okay. Um, so a little 60 over. years. Okay, so that's a considerable amount of time before they had a head count done right. of who was in their land. Um, and then when they, so then when Rome decreed this uh, for all of their, what would you call them, conquered nations to you know, give a head count. Um, So obviously I could see it would be important for, you know, taxes, um, maybe knowing who you're controlling. But was there any other historical reason why they would have done the census? Because that would have been a really large undertaking to gather numbers from their whole empire. Yeah, I think it was just kind of knowing who they're dealing with and being able to extract the correct amount of money. I mean, taxation, we know from the time, was pretty oppressive on the people. And again, depending on who you read, there's varying debates about the percentages, right? Like what percent of a normal person's, you know, yearly earnings would go toward taxes. And wherever you fall on the mark, I think there's a general, you know, wherever you kind of fall in that line, there's kind of a general agreement that it was pretty overbearing. Especially for the normal people, because the normal people at the time were just farmers. Like they were subsistence farmers. I mean, you think about like our friends in Africa, for example, who who we know who grow their own food and that is their livelihood. And so to impart some sort of heavy taxation on them um, was really quite difficult. Because these are people then who are probably struggling to make ends meet and survive without right. having to owe anything to anybody. And and that's why Rome and, and even the local leadership always had to figure out this balance between taxing enough, but not so much that it leads to a revolt. Okay. <laughs> so you have to kind okay. of find that balance, but enough that the people, you know, are, are in a bad spot, but not so bad of a spot that they're really upset, right? Okay. And, and this is why we see then later why Pilate you know, is okay with them killing Jesus because it's all about stopping the revolt, right? Just keep everybody under control. And if things boil too much, you let it kind of simmer down, give the people what they want. Yeah. Let it all go back to quote unquote normal until the next thing. That's really, that's really interesting to me. So it sounds like, you know, they've, 
they've been conquered for a while. We've got, I mean, more than a few decades of life as is now normal before you're told to go back to where you were born, right? Because the census would have been, the reason everyone was traveling was that they were going back to the town they were born in, correct? Okay. Or tell them their family, some sort of connection there. Okay. Which is, by the way, which is, by the way, (laughs) to sort of put a uh, different spin on the Christmas story, the idea that Mary had Jesus in a barn is extremely unlikely. Oh, okay. So tell us more (laughs) because I can tell you my nativity set definitely is a stable with a star on top. Yeah. Historically wrong, (laughs) right? Great story. But I still like my nativity. So they're going back to Bethlehem and these are descendants of David, right? And... I, I want you just to picture any society in the world. I don't care who you are. You can, There's always exceptions to the rule, right? But in general, when there is a pregnant person somewhere, people look out for that person. Mm. Like, I don't care who you are or what the situation is. If you have a woman who's like eight months, nine months pregnant, whatever it is, you, you do whatever you can to help that person. But on top of it, these are ancestor or descendants of David. And so the idea that everywhere was full, so she had to go sleep in a barn, it just wouldn't happen, especially in Middle Eastern culture where honor is everything. Can you imagine a village that let a pregnant woman sleep in a barn with the animals and give birth there? That just, would be a shame story waiting have, to go, yeah. Right, and so Kenneth Bailey, who's this awesome, I mean, he passed away a couple years ago, but he was just this awesome, you know, writer. Um, historian. Right? Historian. It talks about how the, I, the where she most likely gave birth was in someone's home, but animals would sleep in people's homes at these times. I mean, bringing a cow into your house was great because they would give off all this heat and it would help kind of keep your house warm. You have more bodies in the house, right? But they'd be in like a little lower section and then you'd have like the trough up a little higher where they could eat or drink or whatever. So where Jesus was born might have been in that space. But it was most likely in someone's house. So it's almost, if I'm picturing this right, like if you picture kind of like a split level house, how you go down like a short little flight and there's that lower level. So you're not like in the basement, but you're below the normal rooms. So it'd almost be like someone said, hey, you could come stay here. And there, Mary and Joseph would have been in the house. Right. But more in an attachment with privacy. Or yeah, I mean, or it may have been a main. It might have been a main room. I mean, houses weren't that complex back then. Okay. And so this is kind of the situation that they find themselves in. Still not a five star hotel, right? But it gives a little bit of a different spin, um, in the sense that it was still hard. It was still difficult. It still wasn't a lavish king like birth, but a little different than how we might culturally picture it. A little bit more cared for, perhaps. Yeah. A little less abandonment. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) So I'm dying to know about some of the religious things going on and some of just the cultural things going on, but I know those are for future episodes. And since today we've focused primarily on the political situation, which we can all attest to how the politics you are living amidst shapes your experience. Is there anything else about politics that you wanted to be sure we shared today? So Herod was the local leader. I think this is important to know because Rome would establish local people to kind of run the areas, right? So we know Herod the Great. Now Herod was super into architecture. So he would build all these lavish things. He was Mm. a pretty cruel person. 
person. I, he killed some of his own kids. I mean, he was worried wow. about anybody sort of taking over. A lot of people really hated him. But what was fascinating is when I was living in Israel, Herod was known for making these really lavish, amazing buildings. But what's hilarious is if he would he would put a facade on them to make it look like more expensive stones than it actually was made out oh, of. Wow. And okay. underneath wasn't as nice. So it was really fascinating because he built these structures and then just slap on a little outside component, right? It would be like having you know, a marble wall or something, but having it the thinnest possible marble you could have to make it look like, whoa, it's a marble stone when behind it is actually rotting wood. So you put, oh. so maybe not to that extent, but he was a man but of a facade, right? Facades. Exactly. Okay. And so again, the people are living in this time of one, facades, fakeness, okay. but two, just the wrong philosophy of how to create peace in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you could imagine when their their oppressor is the Roman Empire, and then their local leader who's an oppressor is just a complete fraud, fraud type person. I mean, again, not that he wasn't good at architecture or whatever, but there's didn't a he sense build, in which... Didn't he build a house out on the water because he wanted it to look... Yeah, like, like right out on controlled. a yeah. So there was a little bit of land out there, but in the ancient world, the sea was known as a place of chaos, and the only God could conquer the sea. So when you look throughout Scripture, the calming of the waters, all the way from Genesis to the Psalms, is always done by God. Right. Which is why, if anyone ever says that the New Testament doesn't proclaim Jesus to be God, they're flat out wrong and don't know history. Because Jesus calming the storm, the only way to understand that passage is as a declaration that Jesus is God. So Herod goes and builds his house out on this almost little peninsula type thing to make it look like he's conquered the water with his house. Was Herod Jewish? Because that sounds like you either really need to know the Jewish culture to think to put your house out on the water, or you're Jewish and so you already know, like, hey, this is going to make me look really godlike and cool, and you stick your house on the wall. Yeah, water. he was raised Jewish, and he okay. has some ancestry of, I think, people who converted to be Jewish. Wow. So okay. he definitely had that kind of in him. With some um, of his history, you wouldn't picture him being a, a Jewish right. person, so <laughs> the way you, he treated people. Right. And so when you kind of look at this entire situation, it reminds me, I mean, honestly, I mean, not to make this jump, like superficially, but it reminds me a lot of today in some ways of leaders worrying more about their image than what's right, um, government caring more about their ideals really than the people. I mean, we've got a lot of these same things happening in mm -hmm. our world today. And I think people just like back then are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for someone to come in and save Fix them it. in a sense. And, right. and this is what's so interesting about Caesar. You know, John Dominic Crossan points this out in his book, God and Empire. He says, ask someone today who in the first century was Lord and Savior, you know, King of Kings. And we'd all say Jesus. And he's like, yeah, but also Caesar Augustus, right? Who was the emperor during much of Jesus' life. Mm. And so there, there's sort and, of... The, and you're saying that because historically those titles that we use exclusively for Jesus today, those titles were used originally for Caesar for, for the at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I think then what it sort of brings up to us, and again, Jesus sort of bringing salvation in a different way, we have to ask ourselves in Advent, what are we hoping for? Do we believe that our military, that our government, that our money, that our politicians, that any person can truly offer us peace 
because the peace that Jesus offered was so different. He didn't kick out the Romans. He actually was crucified on a cross, right? So the type of peace that Jesus brought in the incarnation was a totally separate peace mm. than what the world thinks of as quote unquote peace. So as we are asking ourselves during this time of Advent, what are we searching for? I think we need to sort of ask ourselves, well, first, what do we trust in? Who right. do we trust? How do we believe that it comes about? So our hope for you is that this conversation today has been one that can help you create a more vivid image of the world in which Christ came and was born and was raised. And that that being able to picture a little bit more of how these people were living and what it would have been like at that time can help you explore for yourself as well what you're hoping in this holiday season. Yeah, just sit with it. See if you can visualize it, picture it. As you're reading through the stories, use some of that information as background to go deeper. And I believe when we can sit with this and we can visualize the time a little more, I think when we can meditate on that, God can sort of enter into that space and reveal our own place mm. in that story. Yeah, it's a very it's a very exciting way to make connections and to um, even connect ourselves more with the Christmas story. So... Brothers and sisters, we're so honored that you've spent this time with us. We look forward to having you tune into our next episode where we're going to explore even more about the life and times of people as Christ was brought into the world. And until then, uh, we hope that you have the space to explore how Christ's coming made a difference in the past, but also makes a difference for us here today. Grace and peace. <laughs>